Yes, he does, she told him. She looked down and saw me. Oh, hello, H.G. Good morning, Zab. Well, said Siatark, hoisting the child up so she sat on his shoulders. We'd better go and see what the old man wants. She twisted round and waved back at me. Bye, H.G. Goodbye, I called as they went towards the steps. It had thought it would be safe out here. Just one more ambiently black speck, deep-chilled in the vast veil of icy debris wrapping the outer reaches of the system. But it had been wrong. It lay, slow-tumbling, and watched helplessly as the probing beams flickered across the pitted, barren moats far away, and knew its fate was settled. The interrogating tendrils of coherence did their job by finding nothing where there was nothing to find. Just carbon, trace, and ice water hard as iron, ancient, dead, and, left undisturbed, no threat to anyone. The lasers flicked off, and each time it felt hope rise, finding itself thinking, despite all rationality, that its pursuers would give up and leave it be to orbit there forever. Then the needle rays reappeared, at least three ships. But its hiding place, however enormous, was almost the first place they had chosen to search, filled it with terror, not just because it did not want to die, but because if it was not safe in this place, then, given that so many of its kind had made the same assumption, none of them would be safe either. Dear reason, maybe none of us are safe anywhere. The Archimandrite Luciferus, warrior priest of the starveling cult of Lysium 9-4, and effective ruler of 117 stellar systems, 40-plus inhabited planets, numerous significant artificially mobile habitats, and many hundreds of thousands of civilian capital ships, who was Executive High Admiral of the Shroud Wing Squadron of the 468th Ambient Fleet, had some years ago caused the head of his once greatest enemy, the rebel chief Stenausin, to be struck from his shoulders, attached without delay to a life-support mechanism, and then hung upside down from the ceiling of his hugely impressive study, so that the Archimandrite could, when the mood took him, use his old adversary's head, as a punch ball. Luciferus had long, sheen, black, straight hair and a naturally pale complexion which had been skillfully augmented to make his skin pure white. His eyes were artificially large. The whites beyond the black irises were a deep, livid red, and his teeth had been carefully replaced with pure, clear diamond, giving his mouth an appearance which varied from bizarre, medieval toothlessness to startling, glistening brilliance entirely depending on angle and light. Again, thanks to genetic manipulation, the Archimandrite was now a tall, well-built man with considerable upper-body strength, and when he punched in anger, and he rarely punched in any other state, it was to considerable effect. Luciferus still felt deep, deep resentment towards the traitor, Resentment which turned to anger when he looked upon the man's face, no matter how battered and bloody it might be. The head's augmented healing functions were quick, 
but not instantaneous. And so the Archimandrite still smashed away at Stenhousen's head with as much enthusiasm now as he had when he'd first had him hung there years earlier. Stenhousen, whose mouth had been sewn up to stop him spitting at the Archimandrite, could not even kill himself. Biosecretary prevented such an easy way out. Even without such limitations, he could not have shouted abuse at Luciferus or attempted to swallow his tongue because that organ had been torn out when his head had been removed. Though by now quite perfectly insane, sometimes, after an especially intense training session with the Archimandrite, Stenhousen would cry. This Luciferus found particularly gratifying and would watch the tears dilute the blood dripping from the head to land in a ceramic shower tray set into the floor. Nowhere's quite as nice as home, eh, is it? The Archimandrite smiled. This is my home. I like my home. Everything I've had to do, I've done just to make home safer. To make everybody safer. Now I have to leave home, and for a very long time. There's a fine thing, don't you think? Me working all these years to make this place safe, and now I have to leave it, still trying to make it even safer, and all because of people like you, who hate me, who won't listen, who won't do as they're told, and who don't know what's good for them. The Archimandrite sighed again, more deeply. I'm going to this, this Ulubis system, because there might be something valuable there because my intelligence people do seem uncommonly excited. Don't worry, though. You can come, too. I feel you spend too much time stuck in here. You could do with getting out more. The Archimandrite Luciferus smiled. Yes, you come with me, why don't you? To Alubis. Nasqueron. Uncle, you wanted to see me? Hmm. Fasin Targ waited politely. It was, these days, not unknown for Uncle Slovius to remain silent, apparently pondering, for some time after even such a simple exchange. Uncle Slovius had been paterfamilias of the seer sept Bantrable for over fourteen centuries, and was regarded as having earned the right to be indulged in such matters. Fasintag folded himself into a sitting position at the side of the large circular pool of luminously blue liquid that his uncle floated within. Uncle Slovius had some years ago assumed the shape of a walrus, a beige-pink, relatively slim walrus, but a walrus nevertheless. The pool took up most of the floor space of the large, roughly hemispherical chamber of provisional forgetting, whose walls were translucently thin agate, inlaid with veins of time-dulled silver. This dome formed part of one bubble wing of the family's autumn house, situated on the continent twelve on the rocky planet moon, Glantine, which orbited the gaudy mass of the gas giant Nasqueron. A tiny portion of the massive planet's surface was visible through the transparent centre section of the dome's roof, directly above Fassin and his uncle. The gas giant was the largest planet in the Ulubis system, 
which lay 55,000 years from the galaxy's nominal center, and about as remote as it was possible to get while still being part of the Great Lens. There were, especially in the current post-war age, different levels of remoteness, and Ulubi's system qualified as back of beyond in all of them. But being on the outermost reaches of the galaxy did not necessarily mean that a place was inaccessible, providing it was close to an arteria portal. Arteria, wormholes, and the portals which were their exits and entrances represented the difference between having to crawl everywhere at less than the speed of light and making almost instantaneous transitions from one stellar system to another. The effect they had on a system's importance, economy, and even morale was similarly dramatic. Without one, it was as though you were stuck in one small, dull village all your life. Once a wormhole portal was in place, you suddenly became part of a vast and glittering city, full of energy, life, and promise. The only way to get an arteria portal from one place to another was to put it in a spaceship and physically take it, leaving the other end anchored where you'd started out. Which meant that if your wormhole was destroyed, then you were instantly stuck in your isolated little village once again. Ulubi's system had first been connected to the rest of the galaxy over three billion years earlier during what was then known as the New Age. Its arteria connection had formed part of the second complex, the galactic community's second serious attempt at an integrated network of wormholes. It had lost that connection in the billion-year turmoil of the Long Collapse, the War of Squalls, the Scatter Anarchy, and the Infomorta Breakdown, then slumbered under the weight of the second or major chaos, when only its dweller population on Nasquilan had survived. The dwellers, being numbered among the species metatype known as...